0: Well, good morning. Now, I've got to tell you something. The 8 a.m. nailed that moment. They got up earlier than you. They were more excited than you and all of it. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not comparing the two services even though I secretly am. So let's try again. Good morning. Hey, we are alive and well. The extra sleep did you good in Jesus' name. My name is Michael Hands, I'm the lead minister here at New Life, and I'm very excited you could join us um, here for our service this morning. If you're online, thank you for tuning in. Um, and we hope that you'll engage with Calvin, our hosts, in the chat as well. You know, I used to be a youth pastor and children's pastor here at this church. And what I loved in that moment was that when we ran events like Level Up or Weekend, the most encouraging thing was that we were in a church that believed in the next generation. Youth ministry and kids kids ministry is pretty rough. It's it's an interesting time of life. And our team is some of the best in the world. But I would love to ask you, could you join with me in praying for these events? Can you join with me in supporting these events? If you don't have kids, maybe you would love to sponsor some young people to come along. I cannot tell you the amount of young people whose lives were changed because someone sponsored them to attend. If you do have young kids, invite them. And then find their friends, invite their friends. Let's see how many young people can be changed because of what God is going to do in these holiday programs. The second thing is, is on Wednesday night, everyone say Wednesday night. night. On Wednesday night, we actually have a congregational meeting, which everyone is excited about. That was better than the 8 a.m. Well done. This is just to um, vote formally on our council. We're reforming our governance structure. We're uh, putting into a a council on Wednesday night. If you're a member or a non-member, you can join us. Only members can vote. We'd love you to be there. It's on Zoom, which means you can wear whatever you want from the waist down and business from the waist up. It's a great moment to join with us from your lounge room or living room. If you come here on Wednesday night, you will be alone. On that note, however, would you join with me as we pray? So gracious God, as we come before you, whether we are tuning in with people in our lounge room, whether we're here in the room, Father, wherever we are hearing or listening to what you're about to do here, still our hearts now. Center us. Turn down the distractions of this world that we might turn up the voice of your Holy Spirit. More than anything, Father, we need you. Less of me, more of you we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'd love you to do, if you're online, I want you to type your answer into the chat. Or if you're in the room, just what I'd love you to do. Turn to the person next to you and tell us, what was the worst job you've ever had? Worst job you've ever had. Just do that now real fast. Worst job you've ever had. I said to our staff, they weren't allowed to say, this one currently. So, worst job you've ever... Throw them in the chat. Pastor Calvin would love to answer us What's the worst job you've ever had? Friends, my worst job I ever had came when I was about 20, 20, 21 years old. I was a door-to-door salesman for electricity. Now, I know some of you are door-to-door salesmen and all power and grace and favor upon you. You're amazing. I am hated it. It only lasted for a week. I was that guy that would knock on your door and try to get you changing energy providers. That was, that was me. That was my job. Don't hate me. I quit after a week. And the reason was, it was one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. I remember distinctly that we would get together at 10 a.m. every day. We'd get into this little small room, all 20 of us. And you see, we only got paid on commission, which means we'd work for about seven to eight hours but we only got paid if we sold stuff. So we'd start the day trying to inspire one another with chanting. We'd like, we just chant like, you can do it. It was weird, it was bizarre. Guys would like slap one another and be like, get out there. Then we'd all jump on the bus as if we were amped up to go sell electricity of all things. And they would drop you off, give you a map that had highlighted a bunch of streets and they'd say, we'll be back in six hours to pick you up. And that was it. And you would look down the street and all I would see was these doorways of people who were yet to hate me. <laughs> and and, and it, was, it was horrible. And you'd go door to door and you'd, you'd try to sell electricity and you weren't sure that there was an ethical electricity company. So it's not like, you, but you also needed to make money so you didn't have to live off magic noodles at university. Like it was hard. And there were times when you just knock on the door be like, I won't sell you anything if you can let me use your toilet right now. When people come to my door, I'm overly gracious to them because I know what it's like to be. I give them a can of Coke. I encourage them. Like, you can do it, buddy. And I'm like, he's probably not going to last. Like, like, I just know what it's like. But I remember one day, distinctly, I was getting trained by a certain guy and we'd gone to a couple of houses and they'd said no. He's like, dude, do you want to just like sit down? I'm like, yeah, sure. And I remember for the next four hours, we just sat on the side of the street and did nothing. And I realized the reason why we did that is because we weren't really convinced that what we were selling was worth it. We weren't really convinced that we weren't some greasy salesman trying to scam people's grandmas into giving us their money. It was was hard. It was tough. And so instead, when they came and picked us up, they're like, how did you go? We're like, "Ah." Really well. Like we tried, it was so close. Oh, you would have, but no, no, we didn't get any sales today. and We would lie about it because there was this sense of embarrassment that we didn't believe in what we were actually doing enough to go out there and knock on doors. That we felt like we were some shady door-to-door salesman pushing a product we didn't actually back. Now, why is that important for today? Because when we talk about sharing our faith, sometimes I think Christians can feel a little bit like shady door-to-door salesmen pushing something that we like for us, but we're just not sure if it's for everybody else. And we kind of like, well, I just don't don't want people to think like I'm shoving anything down their throat. And, And so what we do is that on Sundays, we're like, yeah, everyone should know Jesus. And on Mondays, we're like, I hope no one asks me a question. And the truth is, often this is because we've had bad experiences with people who share their faith. We've seen people force it upon others, use bad tactics, tactics of car salesmen to share their faith. And we're like, I don't want to be that person. Because of our negative experiences with evangelism, we choose not to evangelize. But maybe we just need to reframe what it means to talk about Jesus. Timothy Keller says it like this. Bad evangelism says, I'm right, you're wrong, and I'd love to tell you about it. Good evangelism says this. Hey, we're, we're both wrong, and, and I'd love to tell you about how Jesus can make us both right. Now, I'm not going to unpack this statement other than to say there's a shift in position from one of authority and power that looks down and one of camaraderie and companionship that says, hey, let's both look up. And this, I think, is a shift that God wants to move in our hearts. That friends, we are not selling people Jesus. We are not trying to use shady techniques to scare people into relationship with God. The message we have is good news. It can be trusted. And I want to suggest to you today that every single one of you are evangelists. You're just not evangelists of Jesus. See, and an evangelist isn't a Christian, it's someone who shares good news. And I actually think we all like sharing good news. Some of you are evangelists for essential oils. You think essential oils are the best thing ever, that if they get lavender and a bit of you know, uh, rose oil and combine them together, you will, your house will smell lovely. Now I have essential oils in my house, I'm not throwing a dig at you, but if you've ever met anyone that's, that loves essential oils, you cannot talk with them long before they tell you about essential oils. Anyone relate to that? Anyone next to them share, sell essential oils? No, I'm kidding. But some of you are evangelists for your fitness routine. You're on a keto diet, and you think everyone should be on a keto diet. So you tell everyone about your keto diet. Or you're doing intermittent fasting. You're like, this has changed my life. And so every time you have a conversation, it's like, let me tell you about my intermittent fasting. Some of you watch Netflix, and you've got a great TV show. You're like, oh my gosh, I've got to tell you about this TV. It will change your life. Me? I'm an evangelist for a movie, a musical named Hamilton. Has anyone seen Hamilton? What is going on, people? Only three of you put your hands up. Go subscribe to Disney Plus. And maybe not. Maybe, uh, I shouldn't promote a different company. Hey, listen, if you can watch Hamilton at some stage in your life, it is worth a great musical. If you work at New Life, I literally ask everyone, have you seen Hamilton? You, it's part of your job. Go home and watch Hamilton. Come back and talk to me about it. Why? Because we share things that we believe are good news. We share things that we're passionate about. And so what is the disconnect between essential oils, your fitness routine, Hamilton, and Jesus? How come there are things that we do that we love telling everyone about, but when it comes to faith, we love to keep it to ourselves? It might be that we were raised up with, like, hey, two things you don't talk about in polite conversation is religion and politics. In my world, I see that the two things most people talk about these days are religion and politics. And so I think... We need not be afraid of this. We need to learn how to have the conversation better. In fact, I believe that God is calling us to have conversations that matter. Every single one of us in your workplace, in your family, in your, in your social life, has been positioned with purpose as an ambassador for the kingdom of God. See, last week we talked about what it meant to be an ambassador. And to be an ambassador doesn't mean you just live a certain way. It also means you carry a certain truth. That you live a message. That we all are able to put language to why we believe what we believe. So why don't we? When that person asks, hey, what did you do on Sunday? How come we stammer? I mean, hung out with a bunch of people in a room, and then like we went to the beach. When someone questions you about your views on faith, why is it that our heart starts to race a little bit faster? Or is it just me? How come sometimes you're at that moment, you're like, don't ask, don't ask, don't ask the question? Oh, they asked the question. Now I know there are some of you who are like, that's not me. I'm 100%, ask me the question. I dare you. Let's go. I've got an answer. But for the rest of us mere models, it's challenging. Why? And I want to suggest I, like us all, we're afraid. We're afraid. We're afraid that we don't know how to answer. We're afraid that our answer will be insufficient. If we're in the workplace, we're afraid that our, fanciful, our answer will offend, that it might hurt the future of our careers, that will embarrass ourselves or, or even maybe embarrass Jesus. We're afraid that it will change our relationships. And so many people, in my experience, don't want to talk about faith because we are driven by fear. And I just want to say today, that's okay. Join the club. There has never been a moment when I've shared my faith with someone that doesn't know Jesus where I have not been shaking in my boots. In fact, today, I'm going to read a letter to you from a man named Peter who knew the power of fear, but also calls us to challenge it. In the book of 1 Peter, the disciple who you may know is one of the followers of Christ, he talks to people and says, hey, listen, we should not be afraid. He's writing to the church in Asia Minor a couple thousand years ago, and he's saying to them, listen, I know you're facing persecution. The church in Asia Minor was being oppressed and persecuted by the Roman Empire, and so Peter writes a letter to strengthen their backbone, to give them courage, and to kind of motivate them to be propelled into the world. He says this, he says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Peter writes. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Now, think about who he's writing to. Peter is writing to people who, when he says, Who's going to harm you? their first answer would be the Romans. They did it yesterday. I can prove you I've got the bruises. He's telling them, You don't need to be afraid. Who is Peter? To tell others, hey, don't worry about being afraid. Don't let it drive you. What gives Peter the right? What gives Peter the right? See, Peter knew the power of fear. Peter knew the power of fear. In fact, he knew the power of fear when it came to relating and talking about Jesus. Because I reckon in the back of Peter's mind was a moment that went down in history as maybe Peter's greatest shame. Peter's not writing hiding his failures. He's writing knowing the world knew what he did. Oh, what what did Peter do? Well, in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus has just been arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, his disciple, has been following him for three years. A couple of years before he wrote this letter, he's been following Jesus for three years, thinking that Jesus was going to march on Rome. He was upwards and to the right. Miracles were plenty. Everything was going to go well. And then he sees Jesus arrested and imprisoned and taken to court in front of him. The man he'd given his three years of his life to is now in chains by the very empire he came to depose. And Peter finds himself in front of the high priest's house around a fire, kind of like the ancient water cooler of his day. And he's surrounded by civilians. He's surrounded by people who have all kind of gathered for the trial. And they ask him that question, you know, the one you hate. Hey, you're a Christian, aren't you? Hey, oh, you go to church. Hey, don't you have a faith? What do they say to Peter? Hey, you know Jesus. What happens in that moment is fear wins. Peter in a moment goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Then another person comes to Peter, and goes, no, 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 I saw you with him. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Then another girl says, no, no, you're one of the Galileans who were with Christ. He says, I don't know this man. Three times he denies it. Why? Because he was courageous? No, because he knows what you know. Fear is powerful. And in a moment, it stole his courage. Peter does not write this going, guys, just just be more courageous, right? He knows what fear does. And in a moment, he knew what it meant for fear to lead him to deny Christ. Friends, I, I think some of us have been in this situation. We've denied Christ. We've downplayed our faith. Maybe not with our words, but maybe we've denied him with our silence. Why? Because the fear of men and women is a powerful thing. And the first thing I want to just acknowledge today is that that's real. I feel it. Many of you feel it. And what Peter's doing is he's not suggesting that there is an absence of fear, but there is something that we can do to combat the fear that steals from us the public witness we have for the Christ and the Savior we claim to follow. Peter comes along. Now, my iPad has just died. So if you see me looking at my phone, I'm not texting. I'm reading the notes, okay? If I start swiping, though, you can say, is he on Instagram? Peter, in a moment, turns around, and he says to these people living in fear, do not be afraid. But what does he tell them they can use to combat their fear? It's so beautiful. The next line, Peter says this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. He changes their focus. See, in a moment, when we are focused on fear, it's because we're listening to the voice of those we believe have power over our life. We're feeding that voice. And Christians know this. You know this. Their fear can be a real power. But, but what Peter does is he goes, let me change the focus of your attention. Stop looking at what Caesar can do, at what Romans can do, at what your employees or your, your colleagues or your friends or your family can do. Instead, turn your gaze to Jesus and revere him as Lord. See, for Peter, when he stood around the fire, Jesus was not Lord. Jesus was a failed Messiah. When Peter stood around the fire, Jesus had stuffed up. Jesus had not completed the journey. Jesus had fallen short of what Peter was hoping. But when Peter writes this letter, what has changed? What has changed has been three days that changed the world. This Messiah, who Peter thought had failed, gets pinned to a cross in the ultimate act of defeat. But he doesn't stay there, does he? This Messiah, who is beaten and torn apart by Pharisees and Sadducees and Romans is laid in a tomb, but he doesn't stay there, does he? See, the Messiah that Peter denied would rise from the dead, ascend to the throne, and reveal himself to Peter as not just a good man, but the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Peter says, don't do what I did. Know who he is. That when you're in that moment, and the fear of man is intoxicating the motivation of your heart, The answer is to not try and be less afraid. Is to switch the gaze of what you're looking at. That the one who sits on the throne is still in charge. See, friends, the antidote to our desire to share the faith with our friends, our colleagues, all has to do with where our gaze is set. This is why we go to church. It's not because you have to. Friends, you don't have to go to church. If anyone's ever told you that, then, then that's not the faith we celebrate here at New Life. It's why we do small groups. You don't have to do small group. Sure, there's many other things you could do on a Tuesday night. You could watch Hamilton. You don't have to pray. You don't have to read scripture. Why do we do these things? Well, because I'm trying to be a good Christian. Being a good Christian is not the aim. What we're doing here is we're trying to remind ourselves and fill our hearts with who Jesus is. If you want to have conversations that matter, then the first step is this. You've got to know the Savior. You've got to know Him. And you can't know Him without submitting yourself to going, hey, I gather with other Christians that we might know who Jesus is. I read my word that I might know the character of God. That's why we're reading the Bible this year. That's why we started in Genesis. It's not because we thought it would be easy, but because we wanted our picture of God's character to be full. That when we read Genesis and we read, hey, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. We remember that in John 1, it also says, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and, Word was God, and the Word was God, and the Word was Jesus. We remember that the one who sits on the throne was the one who we stars together for a living, is the same one who propels you into your workplace and is not afraid of what your colleagues think about you. He is in charge, he is in control, and he is reigning. This is why, friends, we need to make sure we don't just know about Jesus, But we know Jesus, that he is your friend. He is your savior. He is your king. So the question I want to ask you today is, do you know Jesus? Not about him. Do you know him? Because when you know him, you know that you're filled with such a boldness because the Lion of Judah is in your corner. What is filling your gaze? What is consuming your mindset? What speaks to you in that moment? Because ultimately, Edward Clowney says it like this, the antidote to fear of men is awareness of the Lord himself. There are some of you here today who don't know Jesus. And you're going, I have to know, what? Who's this Jesus? I want to let you know. If you hang around here long enough, It will be impossible for you to attend New Life and not hear every week about this man named Jesus because he's not an idea for us. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's a real historical figure who still lives and reigns on the throne and we worship him and he can change your life. Can I tell you how I know that? He changed mine. There are so many people in this room. I was gonna say millions, but then I realized there aren't millions of people in this room. There's so many people in this room who are testimony of the fact that Jesus is real. And for those of you who believe that, this is why we walk with boldness, because He is far better than essential oils, your fitness routine, Hamilton the musical, or any diet that you're on. He can actually change lives. And we know that. So that when someone turns to us and says, what did you do on Sunday? Are you a person of faith? Or there is that moment when we know our friends and our family are walking through a time of trial and we sense that provocation in our hearts to go, I know a better answer in a better way and a better truth. We remember what it says next, what 1 Peter says, once you've revered Christ as Lord, what happens next? He encourages, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. See, not only are we called to know the Savior, we're called to know the hope. Do you know the hope of the gospel, friends? Do you know the hope? See, what I love about what Peter says here is that Peter doesn't say, Peter doesn't say, Peter doesn't say, we're done there. I'm going to grab another microphone. Peter doesn't say, friends. Carry hands. If you know not watching online, my mum just handed me a microphone. And we're at MC1, Aaron. No, we're not. mc no, still not there we go round of applause for aaron greenway down the back <laughs> friends peter doesn't say what does peter not say we're so wondering mark well, you've said it like 50 times and we all want you to finish what does peter not say he doesn't say hey if you know jesus go win an argument hey if you know jesus go start a fight hey if you know jesus go tell the world how much you know Hey, if you know Jesus, jump on Facebook and try win an argument in the comments section of someone's post. Just sidebar, can I just help just, I don't know if you're one of those people. I've never met anyone who has had a Facebook conversation and changed their mind. Have you ever been posting and then someone go, oh, that's a really good point. I didn't see it from that perspective. I now will change my whole worldview. Thank you for typing that response. Why? Because people who are typing on Facebook, They're typing from their worldview. They're not wanting to change their mind. They're just wanting to state what they know. So I'm just saying that, friends. Maybe the best place for faith conversations to play out isn't online. It's in person. It's together. What does Peter say? Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Do you know the hope of the gospel today? Do you know the hope that we have in Christ Jesus? One of my biggest griefs as a pastor but even my biggest griefs as a follower of Jesus, just about me is something I call gospel amnesia. And gospel amnesia is an epidemic in my life and in all of our lives when we, are, we, we, we have this propensity to forget the gospel. You walk out of church on a Sunday, what's the gospel? Oh, I could probably tell you. But then on Monday, hey, what's the gospel? Oh, I don't know. That's the pastor's job. But friends, actually it's all of our responsibilities as Christians to know the narrative of the gospel and to live out that narrative. This is vitally important to us because so many Christians walk around and they kind of say, well, you know what? Just preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. Do you know, this is not in scripture. No one's even sure if a Christian even said it or if this was just a way that Christians got out of having to tell other people about Jesus. Now, what's the heart of this is live a life that means when you talk about the gospel, people aren't confused. But there is nothing in the Bible that says you don't need to know how to talk about Jesus. But I think maybe part of the reason why we don't is because we're not sure what the hope is. Friend, hope is something that is only ever needed in suffering. No one who's walking through a good time needs hope because hope is the joyful certainty that the future will not be as bad as the present. And Christians should be a people of a great hope, of great hope. But do you know the hope that we have? There are two forms of this hope that we need to marry and know and inhabit. The first one is this. Do you know the hope of the gospel story? If someone was to ask you what the gospel is, what would you say? When I was young in children's church, they they made us make these little things called the wordless gospel. I don't know if you remember these but if you did, you would probably grew up in church. And it was literally this little colored book with five green, five colored pages on it. Each one was a different moment of how you could share the gospel in a minute. And we would race each other to try to share the gospel in a minute because someone thought that what people wanted to know was the gospel in a really fast pace said to them in a way they didn't ask for, right? And so we would just like memorize Well, green stands for the Garden of Eden and gold stands for this and black stands for sin and and, and what ended up happening is that we, we had a really kind of limited view of what the gospel was, which meant that we were really only reinforcing people's understanding of Christians, that we weren't able to contextualize the good news of Jesus into their situation. This is why this year we started in Genesis, because the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't start in the book of Matthew. It starts in the beginning. And in the beginning, we find the good news is this. Guess what? God created this world on purpose, and you with purpose. That He didn't create this world to be consumed by evil and suffering and sin. When we see evil and suffering, it is not the way of God's good order. It's the way of His broken order. That God wants things to flourish and to thrive, the environment to be taken care of and to blossom and grow for people to cherish and love one another. This is the way things are. And then we should welcome people going, but why is it not that way? Because the gospel tells us evil and rebellion entered the world, not through some outside force, but an inward force of our hearts. The way I talk about sin with people is I call it selfishness, because sin is a religious word that's true and right, but people understand selfishness. Because they see it, not just out there, they see it in here. I say, hey, are we not all selfish? And when people talk like that, people are like, yeah, we are. What's wrong with the world isn't out there. What's wrong in the world is in each of the human heart. And it's the the need for us to be center and for us to be self-absorbed and self-promoting. And selfishness broke the world. We weren't created to be selfish, but selfless. And this sin through the whole Old Testament, you read, if you read the Bible, you would read, it just continues to break things again and again. God calls us back to selflessness and again, selfishness breaks it. God. And so the question we're left with the gospel is this, is that God created something to be good. It ended up being screwed up because of selfishness. So what's the answer? Well, maybe we just try harder. Maybe we just do more. Maybe it's all about self-actualizing and moral autonomy. But none of these things have worked. And so we find Jesus stepping down off the throne uh, throne of heaven and stepping into the story as a human. And here's the beauty about Jesus. When you're talking to someone that doesn't know the gospel, Jesus is the greatest stumbling block. Because the greatest stumbling block isn't creation. It's not revelation. It's who do they think Jesus was? Because non-Christian and Christian historians all agree he existed. So you can't walk past him and just think he was a good guy. No, he was either a madman or the son of God. And so the thing which really should be center every gospel translation or, or message we ever talk about is who was Jesus to you? And Jesus died a death we should have died after living a life we could not live. Why? Because his love for us was so great. Not so we could get out of hell and get into heaven, but that we might partner with him in bringing heaven to earth. We need to stop using hell as a means to scare people into the kingdom of God. I believe in heaven and I believe in hell. But Jesus' hope is not that people might be scared away from hell, but lovingly inspired and drawn into the goodness of His repentance and grace. That there is more for them. That we don't have to wait for eternity. We can live life now with Christ. And He gives us life and life to the full. Have you been living life to the full? And finally, that one day, if there's still suffering and evil in the world, all we know is that God isn't finished yet. For one day, he will redeem all things. That one day, there'll be no more cancer. Amen? There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more pain. No more refugees. There'll be no more people fleeing. There will be safety, security, redemption, and peace. Friends, when you know the gospel like that, you can weave people into the story and be like, let me tell you the picture of the kingdom. We need people who know how to inhabit this world, but not only for themselves, not only do we need to know the gospel, the gospel hope of the story, we need to know our hope in the story of the gospel. See, statistics tell us that the greatest way that you can win someone through Jesus isn't by telling them information, but by telling them your story. What people need to know is not all the information about God, but that you are a living example, example that Jesus Christ is real, and he still raises dead things to life. The most powerful testimony you bring into the world is your own. But how many of us have not prepared or known the story of Jesus' work in our hearts? And some of the reasons, I don't know if the spirit's just I didn't say this in the first service, so I'll say it in this one, 10 a.m., you get extras, it's awesome, and we'll still land on time. But there's this moment where I think maybe we don't want to talk about God's testimonies because we're in the middle of Jesus working out our testimony with us. We're in the middle of some hard moment or some difficult moment. But can I be honest? Sometimes the world doesn't need a nice, tight off testimony. The world needs to know how God is working in our mess, in our doubt, in our anxiety, that even though we feel like we lack right now, God is still good and we still choose to follow Him. So there are three questions that I think every Christian should know an answer to. What was your life like before Jesus. You can answer this with one sentence, or if you're that kind of a person, with three hours. However you want to do that. I would suggest go shorter than three, so they don't like hate talking to you for the rest of your life. But what was your life like before Jesus? Mine, I grew up in church. So I fall into the trap of thinking I don't know life before Jesus, but I do. I grew up thinking that the way into the kingdom of God was by praying a lot, by going to church a lot, and by being really proud about how squeaky clean I was. I was a terrible sinner and a terrible Christian all at the same time. But then there was a moment when God revealed to me that he actually wanted to show me how pride was actually pushing me away from him and being part of the problem, not the solution. So how did I come to know Jesus? When I was 13, I remember for the first time being broken by his grace, being realized I'm not good enough on my own. But then at the age of 21, sitting in the back of this church and having God say to me, Michael, I love you no matter what. You can never change that love and weeping and being broken by the grace of God for the first time. How my life changed now? My life is so different because my value and worth does not come from what people think about me but what Christ has won for me on the cross. That I'm loved and forgiven not because I can preach well but because I'm loved well by God. And I know my story. And I share my story actively when asked because, friends, it's the greatest testimony I have because who can tell me that didn't really happen? Friends, hang out for a long enough time and I pray you'll see Jesus in some part of my brokenness. You'll know God. What is your story? What is the hope that you have? Friends, you're not only just called to know the Savior, know the hope, but finally, Peter finishes with this. He says, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ Jesus may be ashamed of their slander. He says something interesting here, that as you go about talking to people about your faith, do it with gentleness and respect. Can we just... Be honest, sometimes the last thing the Christians in the world are known for is gentleness and respect. Sometimes we're known more for aggression and pride. But when I look at Peter, I go, everything I've read about you, Peter, says that you're not a gentle or a respectful person. I don't you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, they come to arrest Jesus. Do you not know how Peter reacts? He's not, feel free to take him, my friends. No, he whips out his sword and chops off a dude's ear. There's nothing gentle or respectful about that. Is that what Peter, is he saying we should all carry swords around and chop up people's eat? No, not at all. But something shifted in him. You see, when, when we just go out in our own strength, we don't operate in gentleness and respect. These are fruits of a life with God. These are fruits of a greater thing. How can Peter, this brash, arrogant man, suggest to others that we can talk with gentleness and respect? Because when you read the book of Acts, you see Peter not a person of aggression, but of humility and gentleness. What's changed? What's changed in Peter? It's simply this, Acts chapter 2. See, Peter in Acts chapter 2 moved from knowing about Jesus to knowing Jesus. See, the third thing that I think we need for being, uh, having conversations that matter is not only knowing the Spirit, knowing the hope, but finally knowing the Spirit. Knowing the Savior, knowing the hope. We've got to know the Spirit. What do I mean by the Spirit? In Acts chapter 2, one of the most revolutionary things happened in the kingdom of God that God sent Jesus to be God with us. But after Jesus ascended to the throne, a promise came and said this, I don't only want to be God with you, I want to be God in you. That the very power and presence of God descended upon Peter and the gathering of disciples in the upper room as God's power and presence filled them with the hope of the gospel. Now in this moment, what does Peter do? He runs out into the streets and with gentleness and respect, he preaches the gospel for the first time and 3,000 people come to know Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, he's hauled before the Sanhedrin, standing account for all the things he's doing. And he doesn't deny Christ. But When they say to him, you need to stop talking about Jesus or we'll beat you, he goes, I cannot do anything but obey God. Why? Because he knows the Saviour, he knows the hope, but he walks in the power of knowing the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if some of us today are so scared to talk to people about Jesus, not just because we don't know stuff, not because we don't, don't know our story, but because we feel alone. The greatest lie you could know as a Christian is that when you walk into an environment, you are by yourself. No, as Christians, we believe this. The Holy Spirit is with us. And I believe God is wanting a generation again to come back to the understanding. You don't need to come to church to know the Holy Spirit. He is with you in every cubicle, in every taxi, in every moment of your day. He is present and He's wanting to work through you and in you. And we think we're alone because the enemy wants us to know you're by yourself and the Holy Spirit's screaming, I've never left you or forsaken you. If you're a follower of Jesus then the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and wants to move through you today. And it changes ordinary moments into sacred moments. Like Uber rides. A year ago, I got this uh, role as lead minister. This role as lead minister, not a different one. I, I was employed here at this church and I was living in Brisbane at times. So I was traveling down by the train. I was catching an Uber from the train to work. And I'm an introvert. So when I, catch, I, I, when I caught the Uber from the train to work, I would actually be like, this is a great time for me to chuck in my headphones and uh, just not talk to anyone, be chauffeured to church, right? It's like I'm paying the chauffeur, but still, like, you know, it was a great moment for me. And as I was sitting there in the car, I just sensed the Holy Spirit just nudged me and be like, I love this person. That's nice, God. I'm gonna get back to listening to my words. And I sensed, you know, I love this person. And just this invitation for me, well, I love this person. And begrudgingly, if you're an introvert, you know where I'm at. I took my headphones out and I'd just be like, hey man, how's your day been so far? Because I knew, right, that Uber driver was about to drop me at church. And I just thought, who would I be As a pastor, he had dropped at a church. And the person who drove me there didn't even know. So we just started chatting. And then that question comes up. That question, you know what it is. Hey, so what do you do for a living? Oh, now for some of you, that's easy. I'm a teacher. But some of you, the question is, what did you do on Sunday? Or do you have faith and your heart starts to beat faster? Can I tell you the truth? You know, when I feel the closest to God, it's not necessarily in church. It's usually by myself in the morning when I'm spending time with Him or this when I'm in the middle of being obedient to His voice. Some of us feel far away from God because it's been a long time since you stepped out. But in that moment, when my heart's beating fast, I'm like, Jesus, I don't know what to say. I've got gospel amnesia. I'm forgetting everything. I just sense this peace and clarity of the Holy Spirit is the one who saves. The Holy Spirit is the one who goes before. He is with me right now. I'm just gonna step out. If I screw it up, guess what? He's powerful enough to save it. So we start talking about Jesus. One time, a guy and his family moved over here from overseas. They had no community. I was able to invite him to church. He was like, man, I'm so thankful for that. Thank you. Another time I met a dude who didn't believe Jesus was real, had a really bad conception of Christians. I was able to talk with him about it and just like tell him, hey, you know, that Jesus is someone who I believe loves, not hates, who doesn't want to support this religiosity that you think Christianity is about. And we were having this beautiful conversation. Now, honestly, I don't know where each of those guys or, or women are, But I know this, that in that moment, I was ready because the Holy Spirit was with me. And you have a moment tomorrow. Are you ready? Because uh, I'll finish with this one story. Billy Graham ran a crusade many years ago and this uh, businessman gave his life to God. And as this businessman gave his life to God, he, he, uh, he decided to go join a local church. At this local church, what ended up happening was he realized that the elder of the church was his business colleague for 23 years. He went up to him, he said, have you been coming to this church for 23 years? He's like, yeah. The whole time we worked here, you've been a Christian? He's like, yes. And he said to him, and you've never told me. He said, oh, I'm so sorry. He said, no, no you don't understand. He said, i respected you so much and have loved working with you so much that I thought if you weren't a Christian, then I don't have to be a Christian because you're such a good guy. Why didn't you tell me for 23 years? Friends, there are people in your world today who need to know the reason for the hope you have. And maybe they're thinking they don't need Jesus because you don't need Jesus. What would it be like to let them in behind the curtain and be like, I wouldn't be surviving without Him? If you don't know Jesus today, I want to let you know this. He can change your life. He makes dead things alive. He makes old things new. He forgives the past and gives us a promise for the future. And that can be your hope today. If you do know Jesus, this is your hope. This is your story. This is your call. Would you stand with me today? I ask if you would just join with me as we pray. Jesus, we come before you now and I just ask that you would just begin to stir in us, begin to just stir in us a passion for the Gospel, for your truth and for your hope that we would wait upon you. I sense that some people in this room have a name on their hearts and someone God's been calling them to love well and, and create opportunities to talk about the Gospel. And, and I just wanna remind you that that's the Holy Spirit calling you to partner with Him, not go on your own. And might be some of you here today who this is the first time you've heard of the hope of Jesus Christ, that He wants to redeem you, He wants to forgive you, He wants to offer you a fresh hope for the future, that He loves you and that His repentance is for you. It's His kindness which leads us to turn around. Friend, I've got to let you know that you can know the hope of the Gospel simply by choosing to follow Jesus right now. So I want to ask, if for the first time today, you want to follow Jesus, whether you're online or in the room, Wherever you are, if you want to say, hey, you know what, I want this to be my testimony. I want to know the hope that pulls us through suffering and has a better future than the present. If that's you you want to respond to the voice and the work of the Holy Spirit right now in this moment, I just ask, would you just raise your hand wherever you are across this room? Would you just raise your hand? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Just keep your hand raised with me just for a moment. If you're online, I'd love you to click the live prayer button. Calvin's waiting for you right now. Got some people raised their hands. Would you join with me as we pray for these people? If you raise your hand right now, this is what I want to highlight. This is not a, a, a moment where necessarily everything changes other than the direction of your life, which in so many ways is everything. To raise your hand now and says, Jesus, I don't want to follow me, I want to follow you. I want to apologise and repent for the past and step into your promise for my future. So Jesus, for those hands that are raised right now, we pray with them. Father, wash them clean. May they know Your forgiveness. May they know Your love. May they know that the hope of the Gospel is their hope in Jesus' Name. And so if that's you, I just want to love you. I'm just going to teach you a prayer that you can pray with us. And we're all going to pray it together in the room and online. It goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I choose to follow You. Forgive me of my sin. Lead me into my future. Be my Lord, my Saviour, and my friend. In Jesus' name, Amen. Father, we pray You'd flood us with the revelation of Your truth and Your beauty right now. We thank You that we get included into the narrative of the Gospel. We join in with heaven in celebrating for those who have chosen to come and follow You, Jesus. And we join with them in clinging to the hope we have. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, Amen. Amen.